This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. It's not often that a 30-year-old novel takes on a new terrifying resonance, but in early 2017, the first months of the Trump presidency, Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale, did just that. She joined Kim for a fascinating, albeit quite dark, conversation about feminism and democracy and power and the enduring power of art. Enjoy. Canadian author Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel, The Handmaid's Tale, is enjoying a resurgence of interest thanks to President Trump and a new wave of feminism. Many of Atwood's books were feminist, explicitly feminist, and she was one of British publisher of women's writing, Virago Press's lead authors. But it's The Handmaid's Tale that seems to have struck a particularly modern nerve. And I suggested to Atwood that it was both good news and bad news that The Handmaid's Tale has a fresh lease of life. Exactly. Uh, It was never actually dead, but... um it is certainly um, uh, it's certainly off and running at the moment, and that's for two reasons. Uh, first of all, the television series, which is MGM and Hulu in the States and other uh, broadcasters elsewhere, and that initiative began before the recent American election. Uh, in fact, they started filming in September, and the election was not until November. But it was already a meme in that election, and when the election happened, it became um, even more um, well-read, as, as did uh, 1984. And now that the release date of the television series is approaching very rapidly... Um, even more of that kind of activity is going on. That's what makes social media particularly interesting, isn't it? Because it can get ahead of steam on something, you know, the wisdom of crowds, and all of a sudden you have a meme, as you say. Yes, they, people are, are dressing up as handmaids to do things like sit in the Texas legislature during uh, lawmaking sessions on reproductive uh, and health issues. Didn't didn't help, did it? Um, you mean the election? No, I think that those laws went through nevertheless. Oh, uh, well, the election would have encouraged those. Oh, you mean, you mean sitting in there didn't help? Uh-huh. Um, no, you wouldn't expect it to. Um, I think it was a silent uh, visual protest. It must have been, what, spooky for you to see that happening? people emerging from the pages of your book to sit in a Texas courtroom? Yes, just about everything is spooky for me these days. <laughs> uh, I also, when I first heard about it on social media, the uh, South by Southwest Festival uh, had 30 handmaids roaming around in Austin, Texas, not saying anything to anyone. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know they were going to do that. It seems as if feminism has acquired a new energy and new conversations. Young people are engaged in it now after a hiatus in a way, yeah? 
Yeah, I think so. So I I think that you have had actually three major waves in the 20th century into the 21st. And the first one had to do with getting the vote. And that was then followed by the Depression and the war. And then by the 50s, in which the main idea was to get women back into their bungalows to create room for men having jobs coming back from the war. And that gave rise to Betty Friedan and um, ultimately to a second wave, which took off um, after the civil rights movement uh, and after the Vietnam protest movement around about 1969. And that had to do with uh, role, social role, um, body image, equal pay for work of equal value, uh, health issues. It was the age of our body, ourselves. And then there was a hiatus. I think people just got burned out. And and I also think that as one generation becomes mothers and then has teenage children, the usual pattern is to uh, sneer at your parents but adopt the values of your grandparents (laughs) for a while. And then this this third wave, I think, has been building in the early part of the 21st century and has a lot to do, in addition to many other things, with increased awareness of what's going on in the rest of the world. So I think violence against women is a particularly uh, foregrounded theme. Would you not agree? I would. I I saw a, a program about Virago Press celebrating uh, Virago Press, founded in 1973, and of course you were one of their major authors. And on that program, you said, yes, there was the first wave and the second wave. This wave, you said quite specifically, is about violence, rape, yeah. and death. Yeah, a lot of it is, uh, and I think that comes from people seeing the the news. Uh, and seeing things like that woman in India who was basically murdered on a bus uh, and those other girls in India who were just found hanging from a tree um, and issues like that that uh, people have become more aware of. And more global. I mean, I think it's fair to say that in the past feminism has tended to be white and middle class, but finally it seems to have become global. Oh, there are a lot of global initiatives, for sure, Uh, and a lot of uh, what people now call intersectionality, so... I've never quite understood what that meant. I think it meant everybody. It means everybody in. (laughs) Right. That's what I think it means. So everybody, transgender, different racial origins, different cultures, you know, every possible... Uh, thing that you can mention should be included. Given the pushback that keeps coming after every wave, do you have greater hopes for this wave? Well, there's there's always, it seems to me when anybody tries to change anything either way, you know, any way, there's always going to be in, a, in any, anything resembling a democracy there's going to be some toing and froing. There's going to be debate. Now, if, on the other hand, you find yourself in a, 
uh, in an autocracy or a, a tyranny or a totalitarianism of some kind, all of that goes underground. So you don't actually get any public debate because anybody who tries doing public debate is sent to prison or shot. And so this it, is what think, you, of course, depicted in a hand, The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, exactly. Tale. It's a serious totalitarianism. What yeah. was it that that made you write that? Can you sketch me in the kind of context yeah, in which sure. you wrote it? Sure. Okay. So number one, born in 1939, what does that tell you? Who was alive when I was born? Mm-hmm. Well, Hitler, for starters. Yeah, for starters. Who else? Oh, God, blimey. Um, in um, in Canada? Are we talking no, Canada? No, no, no. no, well, Canada had its problems too, but uh, let's just say Stalin and um, Mussolini. Okay. Just for starters. So you were born yeah. in the shadow of totalitarianism. Yes. And then what happened? Well, then we had the war. And then what happened after that? Then we had the Cold War. And people who went through those years remember the stories that came out of uh, totalitarianisms of that kind, of which we have had a number of uh, lesser-known ones since. So uh, Mao's China, Ceausescu's Romania, uh, Albania under communism, Franco, the generals in Argentina, um, Pol Pot in Cambodia, there's quite a long list, and right now North Korea um, is one of the uh, hardline examples of that. So you do get tired of people saying, as they used to say, it can't happen here, because given the conditions, anything can happen anywhere, and the, the rapidity with which things can change can be quite breathtaking. And so you wanted to root it very firmly in the United States, in in yeah, Boston. I to, yeah, I wanted to answer the question, if you, if the United States were going to have a totalitarianism, what would that totalitarianism look like? What kind of totalitarianism would it be? It would not be communist. It would be much more likely to be based on some form of uh, fundamentalist religion. And Boston and, was and the home of Puritanism? Uh, and yes, because one of the foundational moments in in uh, the history of America, we we always think it's the Declaration of Independence, etc. But it's, but underlying that, underlying that Enlightenment document, is a Puritan fundamentalism, which uh, is of the 17th century. And that famous quote, "City upon a hill, a light to all nations," comes from that moment, not from the Enlightenment. You dedicate the book to two people, Mary Webster and Perry Miller. Who were they? Uh, Perry Miller was one of the people who brought the study of American literature and civilization to the academy uh, at Harvard, and I studied with him, and he wrote the seminal book on uh, 17th century Puritan literature. And Mary Webster was a person who was hanged as a witch, but they had not invented the drop yet, so they strung her up in the evening, and she did not die. She dangled up there all night, and when they went to cut the body down, lo and behold, she was still alive. Uh, 
And since my grandmother was a Webster and would say on a Monday that we were descended from this person, but on a Tuesday she would say we were not. She was ambiguous about it. She was ambivalent about it. Uh, I therefore felt that Mary Webster should be one of the dedicatees because if you're going to write a book like that, you're going to stick out your neck by writing a book like that. You should have an ancestor with a tough neck. (laughs) The TV series that you mentioned is not the only project uh, in the pipeline to do with The Handmaid's Tale, is it? It has not been, yes. So it has been a previous film of 19... But there are current projects, other current projects, are there not? There is a graphic novel that is being made right now. There is uh, an audio book, a special edition audio book that has just been released. It's been an opera already. It's been a ballet. It's interesting. What, re- it's what ne- remains? <laughs> it's never, I mean, as we were saying before, you know, the good news and the bad news is it's never, ever going to be out of date. It's like George Orwell's 1984, which I understand is well, also under, undergoing a, a kind of renaissance. Yeah, I, th- I think because of the, um, because especially of the newspeak, you know, the new vocabulary that he talked about, which makes it impossible to... Um, to think thoughts that the regime doesn't like because they've just gotten rid of all those words. So George Orwell and fake news, he basically wrote the book on it. We were talking about um, the abortion laws in the United States a couple of weeks back with uh, Carol Sanger um, about how abortion is being made more and more difficult now in various ways, having been given the signal by the Trump administration Mm -hmm. And this is very much on point when it comes to The Handmaid's Tale because arguably it's all about reproductive rights, isn't it? Oh, yes. Well, it's all about reproduction. So when things become all about reproduction, you have to wonder why they are. In the book, there has been a fall in fertility. And by the way, there's a fall in fertility going on right now, especially male fertility. But also... You have to say that, okay, so if the state decides that that women should have babies for the state, then the state should pay. And at least the handmaids in The Handmaid's Tale are getting proper nutrition. In fact, they're fed like queen bees. Oh, uh, they're, they're fed reasonably well, and they're taken, their health is taken care of uh, as long as they seem to be appropriate candidates. Uh, so if if a country really wants to follow out a program like this, they should not do what Ceausescu's Romania did, which was it mandated that women had to have four children. They they had mandatory pregnancy tests every month, and if they weren't getting pregnant, the regime wanted to know why. And the result of that was that women had children they could not afford to raise. The orphanages build up, and people who could not deal with the situation jumped out of windows. So if you're going to follow a program of enforced childbirth, you should at least pay for it. If you've decided it's in the best interests of your country, you need to pay for it. A lot of people assumed, and this goes to what you were saying about people saying it could never happen here, a lot of people assumed, I think, that The Handmaid's Tale was about um, a Muslim society. 
Yeah, silly old them. <laughs> all, all they have to do is go back in time in, in Western society, uh, just a few, maybe just 100 years. So what you're talking about is a situation in which uh, women can't have their own money. They they can't have jobs outside the home. It's only some women who are, are handmaids. But the rest of women, the rest of women are still in the same situation of not being able to read and not being able to control their own their own money. And, and that was simply the case in a lot of Western societies not very long ago. So I guess the, the message is if people talk about rights and people deserve to have this and deserve to have that, every single one of those rights has been fought for and could be easily removed. So what's the expression that I think Obama used at the ARC? The ARC moves slow but curves towards justice, does oh, it? That's, that's very optimistic. I think. So if you really value these things, uh, you should pay some attention to them. If you really think that people ought to be able to vote, maybe you should vote yourself. <laughs> maybe you yourself should vote. What, you think that it was people not voting that led to Donald Trump becoming president? That was certainly one of the things. I'm talking to Margaret Atwood about her novel The Handmaid's Tale, published in 1985. What does it look like from the Canadian side? Well, Canada in The Handmaid's Tale is, is the place where people escape to. Yeah. And Canada has historically been a place where people escaped to when things were... Uh, too difficult for them south of the border. So it was the uh, place where the loyalists ended up after the Revolutionary War. It was the goal of the Underground Railroad during the times of slavery. Oh, you, you were heading to Canada, and uh, a lot of the spirituals had disguised references to Canada, so crossing the river... Um, it wasn't just the River Jordan, it was the St. Lawrence River and the Niagara River. Uh, going to the land of Canaan was the land of Canada. Uh, so there, the Vietnam War, same thing, a lot of people. And right now there are people crossing the border from the United States to Canada because they're afraid of being deported from the United States. One of the most poignant characters, oddly enough, in... The Handmaid's Tale is the commander who is in control, he wears a uniform, he's the one that uh, impregnates and he is a poor, sad, lonely chap who wants to play Scrabble well, that's with Offred. <laughs> huh? That's his story. <laughs> yeah, you don't think? Well, you know... Um, I do know, but nevertheless, it's all, it's all the, very well. the implication—the well. implication seems to be that we all—it's not just women who suffer; everyone suffers. Uh, well, it, it is a totalitarianism, and in a totalitarianism, uh, those at the top, men and women both, are doing better than those at the bottom, men and women both. So, somebody who has high status, such as Serena Joy, although her status is not as high as that of her husband, it's a lot higher than that of uh, men at the bottom of the heap. What do you, that, what is, that is true of every totalitarianism. So this is a regime also that controls men. You're not allowed to marry unless you uh, get the say-so. 
uh, from the higher ups, and um, your activities are pretty constrained. And what should we read into your depiction of the sisterhood in The Handmaid's Tale? Oh, you mean the Aunt Lydia's? Yeah. Well, the Aunt Lydia's are just typical of any controlling colonial regime in which you, if you possibly can do it, you enlist uh, some of those from the controlled population to do the controlling. So if you go back into colonial history, that is what you will find. So naturally, there is going to be uh, a group of uh, controlling women to control the other women. And some of them will think they're doing it for the greater good. They will be true believers. Uh, some of them will be opportunists, and some of, some of them will be sadists. I was um, wondering whether you were doing the graphic novel version of The Handmaid's Tale, because you're a big graphic novel author now. Well, I'm not, not that big a graphic <laughs> novel person. Uh, no, it's an, it's an artist called Rene, R-E-N-E-E, no, N-A-U-L-T. And she is almost finished, but she's hand-coloring everything, hand-painting everything, so it's going to be very beautiful. And lots of red, obviously. Lots of red. Uh, but your graphic novels are uh, the Angel Catbird series. You've, you're going yes. to have three of those. Uh, that is true, and, and it is an all-ages graphic novel, which is uh, dedicated to the proposition that there is a, a flying superhero who is part cat and part bird, and therefore can give us both sides of of that particular um, adversarial relationship. Is is should is an unusual career move, I think. Well, I'm I'm so old that we didn't think of having careers as such. So probably if I had gone to a, a creative writing school, they would have told me not to do things like that because it would confuse the quotes core audience, unquote. But since I've never really thought that way, I always ask the question, why not? And if there's no good answer to why not, then it's something I can do. It's interesting that um, Angel uh, Cat can fly and you're a big bird watcher. Yes, and if you delve deeply into Angel Cat Bird, you will see that it contains a lot of bird information as well as a lot of cat information. Wow. So it's an ornithological guide as well. Did you just meow? No. (laughs) I could have. I could have. I heard that. I heard that. (laughs) It could be an ornithological guide also, many layers. Uh, Well, not exactly ornithology, but a lot of of facts and and hints as to um, how to make your cat safer. And in the process of making your cat safer, you can... Uh, well, New Zealand is particularly vulnerable because of all the ground-dwelling birds and creatures. The other productions that you have in the pipeline to do with your other writings is HBO, I think, is developing Madadam. I think that was last year. Netflix, Alias Grace? Yes, yes. And MGM uh, TV last week said, uh, last week, last year, said it was working on The Heart Goes Last. It is, yes. So, and you know, so many things. Are you involved in any of those? 
Uh, well, in the way that one is. I don't know how is one. Well, sort of like a semi-mummified talking head. <laughs> so do they, they consult me and I give oracular answers, but it doesn't mean they do anything I say. Do you mind? Why would I mind? I've, I mean, I do you mind them not necessarily doing anything you say? Is it beyond? No, because I uh, used to work in film and television and I know the hazards and challenges and nobody in their right mind would give the author of the book any kind of control because they are notoriously pernickety. Uh, so after putting in your $30 million, you don't want to have them say, well, I, you've got the wrong necktie on that character, so I'm canceling the entire thing. Huh. Um, no, I, nobody does that. Somebody asked you whether you would consider a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, and I thought it is its own sequel, isn't it? Well, we're now getting into... We're now getting into unknown waters. Are we? We are, yes. And those waters shall remain unknown. Oh, that's a tease. They, until they become known. Really? And when will those unknown waters become known? Well, because they're unknown, we actually don't know. <laughs> All I can say is make it good, why don't you? Because, <laughs> you know... Eh, it's so good as it is. I wouldn't want, you know, I wouldn't want you to mess this one up. No, well, it might not be me messing it up. Oh. They are already talking about a second um, season. Wow. No, that's amazing. So, Alfred could run and run. Alfred's been played um, by Elizabeth Moss, which is a stroke of genius, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes. She has an extremely mobile face, and that's good because she has to do the whole film without any makeup on. Well, she's one of those people who can look both plain and beautiful at the same time, which exactly. is very clever. That's, that's what you want for such a character. Um, when you took part, albeit briefly, in the documentary honouring the Virago Press, yeah. um, I wanted to ask you what that meant to you. This was a, a huge, a woman-only publishing house, publishing only women, and from fringe and being kind of discounted by the industry and the media, which was very much male-dominated, it became hugely influential. Yes, well, okay, so we're going back into the 70s. We are. Yeah, when did it start? 73. Yeah, so I don't think they published me until 76. No. And they published me in 76 because, quite frankly, nobody else wanted to do it. What was the first book of yours they published? I think it must have been... Um, the Edible sur- Woman, no? It might have been The Edible Woman. It might have been Surfacing. Right. Uh, and nobody else wanted to do it, what, because it was just too damn feminist? I don't know why they, you know, it was paperback companies at that time, so it was Penguin and this and that, and they probably felt it wasn't commercial enough. Pu- publishers don't uh, make ideological decisions primarily they primarily make commercial decisions yeah so they they publish things they think they can sell and their economies of scale were different from virago's economies of scale because virago was very very small at that time they were in one big walk-up room in soho above a massage parlor uh, so they could afford to sell just a few number no, uh, numbers of copies Uh, because they didn't have a big staff and lots of overhead they had to pay for. The other thing is, I mean, it's all very well to commercially say give people what they want, but 
But it's much more exciting, surely, to say, give people what they don't know what they want yet. That, of course, and that is a, and that is really um, the interesting kind of publishing. And the less interesting kind is we know what the niche market is, and we're publishing for that. Uh, so Virago just it, it flung itself into the fray, and lo and behold, people did want that. And I don't know, are you still publishing under the Virago imprint in Britain? Absolutely, it's yeah. Lenny Goodings. Um, but they, they did the paperbacks, and they've always had a, they've had a deal with various publishers that have done the hardbacks. So they don't have the entire list. Um, Vintage has got some of them. Oh yes, that's right. Because I'm looking yeah. at a vintage. I'm looking at a vintage paperback now, which yes, has the vintage a... has the ones that were originally published by Jonathan Cape, yep. which then got bought by um, Penguin Random. Do you think that you would write an explicitly feminist novel now? Well, what do we mean by that word? So that word has changed its meaning over the years. And it used to be that when you got asked that in, say, 1971, the asker might be asking you, do you think all men should be shoved off a cliff? Um, or they might be asking you, do you think that all women should wear overalls and boots and nothing else? And those are probably not the topics of conversation anymore. Um, so what do we mean by feminist... I think it's one of those words like Christian or socialist that has a number of different meanings, and you can't really answer it until you know what the other person intends to be asking you. So by explicitly feminist, do you mean that it would have women at the center of the action? I've already done that a lot. Uh, do you mean that it would contain examples of inequality? I've certainly done that a lot because that's the real world. Or do you mean that it would be a book in which women have lots and lots of power, in which it would be a book called The Power by Naomi Alderman? Ah, uh, is that a recommendation? I'm not familiar that's, with that. That's a recommendation. Well, it, it, it came out in the UK, but it may not have... Uh, I don't think it's coming out in the US until the fall. But it's a book in which women have um, developed an, an electrical organ that allows them to electrocute people, which, as you might suppose, has changed the power of <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> as it would. <laughs> so you can give them just a little shock, a sort of titillating little zap, or you can kill them, one or the other. Uh, do we have a moral dilemma here? Uh, we have a moral trajectory that you can follow. And... Is, I'm guessing here, because I, I know nothing about this book, but is it uh, uh, an issue of people who have power turn bad? People who have power turn bad? Um, some people who have power turn bad, but not all people who have power always turn bad. Power does not always corrupt. Uh, power, well, depends here again. What do you mean by corrupt? Uh, misuse. And, therefore, and mm -hmm. therefore you have to read the book. Oh, that's right. I will have to read the book. Um, speculative fiction is, is, I think, the way you would prefer The Handmaid's Tale to be described. Yeah, I would, I would, prefer, to, I, I would prefer there to be some exact categories, oh. uh, by which I mean that um, 
a vampire tale is not the same as a princess of Mars. And so what, speculative fiction? We can call it that. We can call it apples and oranges. We can call it carrots and beets. I, I kind of don't care as long as we are agreed that uh, a galaxy far, far away is not the same as planet Earth. No. Well, that's right. Um, dystopian fiction is another thing, but then, once again, it seems to be distancing itself from us. Well, a dystopia can take place anywhere. Um, it can be in a galaxy far, far away, or it can be uh, on planet Earth. Um, it just means a, a society of a kind that we, we really would prefer not to live in. And that was Margaret Atwood. Canada's most eminent novelist on the subject of the several iterations of The Handmaid's Tale, including the serialisation starring Elizabeth Moss.